Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. They are the only team in the history of football to win a championship in three different cities. In 1999, the St. Louis Rams defeated the Tennessee Titans. In 1951, as the Los Angeles Rams, they defeated the Cleveland Browns. And in 1945, as the Cleveland Rams, they defeated the Washington Redskins. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, a look back on where it all began for the Rams, Cleveland. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. As always, so glad you can join me as we take a look back at the stars who played the games we love to watch. But not only will we look back on forgotten heroes, over the course of time we will also look back on forgotten teams and forgotten leagues. And in this, the 80th anniversary of the Rams joining the NFL, we take a look back at where it all started for this team, Cleveland. Many teams have relocated, and some might actually surprise you. In fact, did you know that the original Baltimore Orioles moved to New York and became the Yankees? Or that the Kansas City Chiefs were originally the Dallas Texans? The Los Angeles Lakers, they were first the Minneapolis Lakers. And the New Jersey Devils moved to the Garden State after spending time in Colorado as the Colorado Rockies after first being known as the Kansas City Scouts. Yes, many teams have moved and changed names. Of course, Cleveland remembers well when the Browns left for Baltimore. And the fans of the Browns were none too happy. But when the Rams left Cleveland, it was almost unnoticed, almost welcomed. The Rams really never caught on in Cleveland. Attracting fans was always a struggle, and there were many reasons for this. And joining the podcast shortly to talk about the Cleveland Rams will be Jim Selecki, author of the recently released book, The Cleveland Rams, The NFL Champs Who Left Too Soon. For more information about Sports Forgotten Heroes and the Cleveland Rams, please visit sportsfh.com. I have links there to video of the Cleveland Rams, stats, and more. You can also listen to past podcasts, find out more information on all of my guests, see what podcasts are coming up, and learn how to support Sports Forgotten Heroes. Speaking of which, thanks to Henry R. and Jack K. for their continued support. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at Sports F Heroes, or search for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. You know, the Rams played their first year of football in 1936 in the original AFL, not the one that merged with the NFL. They joined the NFL in 1937 and remained in Cleveland through the 1945 season before moving to Los Angeles. But most in Cleveland didn't miss the Rams because they were immediately replaced by a championship-caliber team from the AAFC, the All-American Football Conference, 
the Cleveland Browns. But the story of the Rams is a fascinating one, and here to tell us more is Jim Selecki. Thank you, Warren. Uh, Great to be on. Hey, so let's start here. Many football fans are quite aware of the fact that the Rams moved last year from St. Louis to Los Angeles. And prior to that, they moved from Los Angeles to St. Louis. But very few know that the first time, yep, there was a first time that they moved to Los Angeles, it was from Cleveland. Yes, the Rams used to be the Cleveland Rams. Tell us about that first move and just how underhanded it really was. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, Daniel F. Reeves uh, was uh, was the man who bought the Rams in 1941. The Rams had actually begun as, as a locally owned team in, in Cleveland by a whole coalition of local sort of sportsmen and lawyers and, and, and uh, businessmen. And when the, the war approached in the early uh, 1940s, this, this collection of owners began to become very concerned about the fact that the war might actually end operations of uh, uh, of the NFL, hmm. and that they might then, uh, yeah, and then might lose their investments in, uh, in in the team if they did not play uh, play their games. So Dan Reese came in, and he came from a wealthy family from New York City, was from obviously from outside of Cleveland. He had had, had designs on owning an NFL team for quite some time, and had actually attempted to buy the uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers, had attempted to buy the Philadelphia Eagles, and was hmm. repulsed on both. And both attempts, yeah. And then when, um, so when he bought the Rams, he immediately, um, and this is within 24 hours, the rumors swirled that he was going to move the Rams to Boston. And um, because the Rams had just not been uh, drawing very well in Cleveland. And all the city fathers pretty much prevailed upon him. No, no, you have to keep the team in Cleveland. Um, they were really trying to get an NFL franchise established in Cleveland, which may be hard to believe now, you know, NFL is considered to be pretty pretty healthy in, in the Cleveland market, sure. in spite of the, the you know the performance of recent in recent years. <laughs> um, but, but they tried to keep the team there, and um, and and the and the owners as well. The other owners were against it, uh, against the Rams moving out of Cleveland. So, but Dan Reese always sort of had in the back of his mind, you know, that he right from the start that he was not necessarily long for Cleveland. And so through the uh, early forties, forty two, forty three, forty four, as he owned the team. He um, had always kind of cast an eye on California. And, um, and then he hired, of course, a general manager named uh, Chili Walsh, who was from Hollywood, went to right. Hollywood High School. Uh, he had a coach who was, uh, who was also uh, who was his brother, and he was also from, from uh, Hollywood, California. And then he got the quarterback in Bob Waterfield, who was, um, of course, from California. So through as we got into 44, 45, the rumors began to swirl yet again that the Rams are going to move. And, and through it all, Dan Reeves, the owner, said, no, no, there's no way I'm not going to move the team from Cleveland. Um, uh, Chili Walsh, the general manager, uh, said the same thing about a, a year practically to the day before uh, the Rams announced they're going to they're move. He uh, assured local reporters, no, we have a lease on League Park, which is where the Rams played um, when they weren't playing at Cleveland Stadium. And then, indeed, four days before the Rams even announced that they were going to be, uh, they're going to uh, uh, move, and they got permission from the NFL at the NFL owners' meeting in January of 1946. Four days before that, uh, Dan Reeves told um, 
Bob Yonkers, who was a reporter for the Cleveland, the, the Cleveland Press, he said the Rams will definitely stay in Cleveland. <laughs> and then, as I mentioned, yeah, four days later, uh, the uh, uh, the NFL voted to allow them to move. And, then, and the, the day after that, they announced they were moving. It was in the New York Times, and, and that was it. And the Rams were gone, just like that. So it was uh, it's a thing that, you know, it may sound familiar to modern-day fans is that there's getting reassurances from the owners that, oh, no, that we would never move. But it absolutely was happening behind the scenes, and uh, so in that respect, it was a little it was a little underhanded for sure. And and here they had just won the NFL championship, and they move. And by the way, they're the only franchise in football to have won a championship in three different cities. You know the relationship between the city of Cleveland and the Rams never appeared to be a solid one. Why was that? Well, first of all, you're talking about a whole lot of losing, you know, <laughs> through that. Um, you know, the Rams had eight seasons, eight NFL seasons in Cleveland. Um, one, only one of them, only in one of them was in a winning season, and it was in that championship season in 1945. They had one 500 season in 1939. So there was just a whole lot of losing there. You know, not a surprise. It was an expansion team, and um, and, and particularly back in those days, um, uh, attendance was yoked pretty much to 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 winning, and winning was uh, was yoked to, to to attendance because, you know, the owners really relied on that attendance to to have the payroll to be able to to, to sign and, and pay their players, but at the same time you couldn't get the players if you didn't have the attendance. So it, 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 and the attendance without the players, so they got kind of in this like uh, vicious circle. So losing for sure. The other is that there was a lot of competition from from other sports back then. I mean, people don't realize this, but NFL football was certainly nothing what it is today. Uh, baseball reigned supreme in, in sports in those days, particularly in Cleveland and in other cities like Boston. Uh, you know, boxing was big back in those days. Um, and uh, so you had just a competition from other sports, college football. Um, there was a very unbalanced schedule. The, the NFL back in those days yeah. did not play – yeah, did not play eight games, you know, at home, eight games on the road. It had a schedule that very much favored um, the, the kind of the power teams, who at the time were the New York Giants, the Green Bay Packers, the Chicago Bears. So the Rams played in their um, in their NFL schedule while they were in Cleveland. They played only about 43% of their games actually in Cleveland. The rest were road games. And, and that was the, the, the only franchise that exceeded them and that was the Chicago Cardinals, who played only 37% of their games at home, as they were sharing a market with the Bears. And I think it's interesting that those two teams that were the most on the road of that era, of course, are the two teams that have moved the most, right? I mean, the Rams had been in three different cities, and, of course, the Cardinals had been in three different cities. It's almost like that sort of itinerariness, you know, was kind of built into them, both teams right from the start. And then lastly, it was, I mean, Cleveland Stadium, as we know, you know, later when the Browns played there, Cleveland Stadium was no prize of a, sure. of a, of a, of a venue to see a game. So, I, I mean, that was another thing. So you kind of had this, these confluence of all these factors that kind of, you know, that's just kind of worked against the Rams when they were in Cleveland. Why did the NFL have such an unbalanced schedule? Wouldn't it work in their to their advantage to let some of the marquee teams play in each city? It it, it, it was it, how did that schedule come about? I think they were just playing to where they knew that there was going to be attendance, you know. So they, you know, obviously they're going to load up as much as possible. For instance, in New York, I mean, the Giants played, you know, at like a, an incredibly high number of games. 
uh, at home. You know, just, just because it's a much larger market and the, and the Giants were a marquee team. You know, then you had ballparks, um, you know, uh, like, you know, in Green Bay, which maybe not as uh, big of a market, obviously, but the, the team that routinely won. So I think the NFL, you know, they were kind of, they're bootstrapping in the, in the, in the 30s. They were, they were just trying to get money uh, wherever they could get it. And, you know, they just kind of went where they went where the money was. You know, and so when you have an up-and-coming team, even though Cleveland at the time was a larger market, um, but we have an up-and-coming team that's just not drawing very well, they're going to move those games to, you know, to, to stadiums and to cities where they have much more of a guaranteed uh, gate. You know, and and the NFL really wanted a team to succeed in Cleveland. So let's go back to the beginning. After a few failures in trying to establish a foothold in Cleveland. The NFL approved a new team in 1936. Tell me about how the Rams came to be and their early years in the original AFL. Yeah, that was interesting because you had a guy whose name whose name is Buzz Wetzel, and as, and as I you know as I known in the book, here's a guy who is really kind of lost to history. Um, the Rams are kind of thought to be the the creation of a of a lawyer named Homer Marshman. But it was really Buzz Wetzel, Damon Buzz Wetzel, who uh, played at Ohio State, was a star for Ohio State. He was the son of a baseball scout for the Cleveland Indians. So Buzz Wetzel got out of college and um, played a little bit of football. He played for the Bears uh, on the same team, actually, as uh, Bronco Nagurski. Hmm. Uh, played, yeah, played for a little bit with the uh, then Pittsburgh Pirates, now the Pittsburgh Steelers. But really what he wanted was, after one season of playing, um, he, he really wanted to run a franchise. I mean, he, he, it's like he had sports management in his blood, you know, uh, literally. So he got an idea to, they wanted to start a, a, a franchise. The NFL being very tight knit at the time, didn't really get much entree there. So he, um, got an idea to get a franchise going in the American football league, which is kind of starting up. And, and, um, so he managed to convince Homer Marshman and some other, uh, money men in Cleveland, uh, to to finance this team to go into the American Football League, and it's kind of an interesting story how the how the team was named was um, really the team had gotten going, and they said, "Well, geez, I guess we need a name now." And, <laughs> and it was Buzz Wetzel, uh, it was Homer Marshman, and it was two sports writers who were there. Uh, one of whom was John Dietrich, who covered the the Rams literally from the beginning to the end of their time in Cleveland, and that's where I relied relied a lot on John G, uh, Dietrich's uh-huh. accounts for uh-huh. what's in the book. But they said, we need a name, so what do we call the team? And um, uh, Buzz Wessel said, well, you know, I've always been a fan of the uh, of the Fordham Rams, who were then very big, very powerful. Uh, they had, uh, you know, quite a few stars on the team at the time. Right. And um, so I was like the Rams, and then uh, the two sports writers weighed in and said, well, yeah, we like that too because, you know, a four-letter name like that, that'll fit perfectly in a headline. <laughs> and, um, and, that was, and that was it. So that's how the team came about. So they had an interesting first year in the AFL. Um, uh, they 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 became almost antagonists with another team called the Boston Shamrocks, and there was a link between Homer Marshman of the Rams and the owner of the Boston Shamrocks, whose name is Paul Thurlow. The two of them had gone to law school together at Harvard. So, uh, it, as it turns out, at the end of the season, the Boston Shamrocks are just barely ahead of the Rams in the AFL standings. And, and of course, we're then therefore because this being the era, they didn't have playoff games in, in those days. Just whoever had the highest winning percentage won the championship. Right. So the Shamrocks 
proclaim themselves the winners of the, the champions of the AFL until Homer Marshman reminded Paul Thurlow that they had agreed to play an exhibition game at the end of the season. So this then was positioned as a as what would be a playoff game in League Park in Cleveland. So the Rams started to promote the game as the, the you know this the, the playoff for the championship of the American Football League, and uh, and and started to sell a, a, a fair amount of tickets, maybe about fifteen thousand tickets. Wow. However, there was yeah. However, there was snow in the forecast, and so the Boston Shamrocks had their own troubles back back in Boston. Not least of which is that their players were striking for more money. And some of them were refusing to, uh, to to take the train to Cleveland to play this game. So the Boston Shamrocks basically fabricated a story that there was going to be a blizzard in Cleveland and that it would probably preclude them from playing the game anyways. <laughs> so they said, so they said, we basically the game is off, and we we therefore proclaim ourselves the champions of the American Football League. Well, you know, this is of course Homer Marshman at this point basically said, you know, we've had about enough of this rinky-dink league here, and that was about the time that they then said, you know, Marshman said, I think I might be able to get us into the NFL. He had a friend in uh, Joe F. Carr, who was then the president of the National Football League, based out of Columbus, Ohio, and that was really then what kind of, after a solitary season of the Rams of the American Football League, that's what got them entree into the NFL. And their entree into the NFL wasn't all that smooth, Players right. were, you know, they dis- sort of had to disband the team and then redraft. So they actually started from scratch, and the league drafted the players before the team was formed. They had bids from different cities, but again, Joe Carr wanted a team in Cleveland. Tell me about that right. process, how they lost their players. And here they were a decent team, and they basically had to start from scratch. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and, and by the way, that's a point of contention to some degree uh, among football historians as to whether were the Rams truly founded in 1936 or were the Rams truly founded in 1937. The NFL, of course, will say that it was 1937 because that was when they really – that they started up as a, an almost completely different team. Um, I, I, I maintain, and hence it's in the subtitle of my book, the NFL champs who, came, who left too soon, 1936 to 1945, because to me that was really when the franchise started up. And, 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 and uh, Joe Horgan, who's the uh, lead historian at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, made a distinction there, and he said, you know, there's a difference between a franchise and a team. And and it's, from my perspective, the, the franchise was Homer Marshman, who who, who um, stayed the owner as it went over to the NFL. It was Buzz Wetzel who stayed over as the coach and the general manager, and his three players who then stayed with the team, as well as the name of the city. So, anyways, as a as a side note, I I kind of see the provenance of the team really being in 1936. But you're absolutely right. What's interesting, the number of cities were bidding on that on that on that franchise, and uh, interestingly enough. Uh, two of the cities that bid and lost were Houston, which was at the time about the size of Toledo, Ohio. Houston was certainly not the city that it, that it is today. And the other city was uh, Los Angeles, and uh, which is hard to believe. But yes, in 1937, Los Angeles lost out to Cleveland um, for an NFL franchise. The main thing being there is that neither one of those cities had a Major League Baseball franchise. And the NFL very much was tagging along 
uh, in kind of in the footsteps or the shadow of the NFL, which is why, of course, the Bears are named after the Cubs, and you know, then you have the Lions and the Tigers, and and they played in the same ballpark. So the NFL wanted to be associated with Major League, um, uh, of the Major League City. Cleveland then was a Major League City thanks to the Indians, and um, so that's how the pretty much how they. Uh, how they got the franchise. As you said, Joe F. Carr made the draft pick because the city had not been decided yet, so they had to conduct the NFL draft. And what I think was interesting is that today, of course, the incoming team would get the first-round draft pick. This was not the case in 1936, 1937. Right. The incoming team got the, got the 10th and last pick in the draft. So as I note, um, the first pick was Sammy Baugh in that draft. Um, by the time the Rams came around and Joe F. Carr picked on behalf of the Rams, he draft, drafted a player out of Purdue named Johnny Drake, who was actually a, a pretty fair player in his own right. He was right. kind he of was, a he was decent. running back. Yeah, he was decent. Yeah. Yep. So it was by no means a bad pick. You know, Joe F. Carr did a, a, a good a good favor for the Rams there. But as I talk about in the book, boy, they missed out on Sammy Baugh just because of the rules of, of the game then. And, and uh, boy, that, that would have changed football history. And there were some players – who when that were on the Rams in the AFL and when the Rams came to the NFL, the NFL suspended those players, particularly Sid Gilman. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, this gets back to the NFL, you know, when we still see this today. I mean, it happened through the 60s with, with the, you know, the, I think, I guess it was now called the third version of, of the NFL or the AFL, um, was very jealous of, of upstart leagues. Right. And, um, so they had a few players there who had um, who had, had the temerity, so to speak, to jump to a, a rival league. Um, you had uh, Gomer Jones, who had been a kind of a, a marquee lineman for Ohio State, played for the Cardinals, and then he jumped to the AFL Rams um, and played a year. In fact, he was kind of the star of the team. So then, when the Rams then were going to move into the NFL, the AFL to the NFL, the NFL basically said. Uh, basically banned them from the, for four years is what, is what they did back in those days, which is basically a, it was a lifetime ban because most players had pretty much a four-year um, four career anyways. Another player was a guy named Max Padlow who had played for the Eagles. He's also from Ohio State. And interestingly enough, he went on to play for the, for the Cincinnati Bengals of a, of a, of a, of a rival league mm-hmm. to the NFL. Mm-hmm. And then another interesting play, the most interesting guy among all of them was, of course, Sid Gilman, who played one year for the for the startup Rams, um, scored the very first touchdown in the Rams' history in 1936 for the AFL Rams. But Sid Gilman played one year pretty much as a favor to his friend, uh, Damon Buzz Wetzel. They're all Ohio State guys. Uh-huh. And, uh, but he really had his eye on coaching, and so which was, of course, a wise choice because after that year, Sid Gilman went wholeheartedly into college and into pro coaching, and now he's in the Hall of Fame. So, but yeah, but uh, Sid Gilman had been pretty much was also banned from uh, pretty much was banned from the NFL for having played one year in a rival league. You know, here's another name for you, and and tell me what he had to do with the Rams. The Pittsburgh Pirates, that's the baseball Pittsburgh Pirates, the University of Oregon, the naming of the Arkansas Razorbacks, Penn State, and even Bronco Nagurski. That name is Hugo Bezdek. What qualified him to be a football coach, and why did the Rams hire him? 
Interesting question. Like Hugo Besnick, and he would merit a whole story unto himself, a whole book unto himself. <laughs> uh, you know, what qualified him was really, he was a college uh, football Hall of Fame coach. You know, he had, as you mentioned, he had coached uh, the Arkansas Razorbacks, and, and as, and as uh, legend have, has it, uh, the team was not called the, the Razorbacks at the time. And, uh, but the Razorbacks, you know, the, the Hogs were relatively known in Arkansas. Legend has it that Hugo, who was actually uh, wasn't born in the United States, he was born in um, what now would be, I guess, Czechoslovakia. But he, um, when, when, the, uh, when, the, when Arkansas had upset, I believe it, was, it was, might, have been, might have been Louisiana State, but they, uh, when, they, uh, when they had a huge upset victory, from the back of a train, when a train came back, came, came back uh, into town, he said, you know, this team, they played like a, like a band of wild Razorbacks. And so that really stuck. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, debate about that, but if you, I think you'll, if you look at the university of Arkansas website, they will, they will attribute that at least in part that it was to Hugo Besnick. Wow. but he also went to the, yeah, he also went to the university of Oregon. He, um, he also, but he really spent a good bit of his career at Penn state where interestingly enough, he was very successful as a general manager or as a uh, athletic director and as a head football coach. But he had this kind of very, he's a, he's a very um, idealistic sort of guy. And he had an idea that with the rise of pro sports, he said, you know, college sports really should be pure. There should not be scholarships. There should not be, uh, you know, any sort of painting of money in college football. And little by little, he started to sort of dismantle a lot of that infrastructure which might sound incredibly, you know, uh, uh, applicable to, to the modern day, but he began to, to mis- dismantle some of that, uh, the money around the uh, around Penn State, and sure enough, the team began to uh, began to falter. Um, he also, uh, as you mentioned, he also managed the Pittsburgh Pirates for a little bit. Yeah, how does that happen? How, he's got to be like the only guy that is has was a manager in the major leagues and a head football coach in the NFL. I know, yeah, and and I think you might be right. I think I think there are some uh, some assertions out there that say, yeah, he that I believe, you know, you'd have to go really far back, and you might find other examples. But yeah, it's certainly in the more modern era. You're right. He's he's certainly stands unique of having been a college football uh, uh, coach, a major league baseball manager, and also an NFL coach. But yeah, so he, I mean, he had all these accolades uh, for all his years that he had, you know, he had been in sports. So, and the Rams were really looking for for a name coach, and um, they really had two uh, choices before him. Um, they had a guy named Ernie Nevers and then Dick Hanley, and they both those guys ended up turning the Rams down. So Burt Bell, of course, who then was the uh, owner of the Eagles and went on to be NFL commissioner, he called up Marshman and he said, "Hey, have you considered Hugo Bezdick? And that was that was pretty much it. So Hugo jumped to the uh, Cleveland Rams so and was a coach for about a year, a little bit over a year. And his debut with the Rams was not a good one. You know, as you would expect, an expansion team doesn't win a whole lot. They their first game they lose twenty eight to nothing to Detroit with a quote unquote boring four pass attempts. Um, not the way you want to attract fans. They did win their second game against the Eagles, and then they lost every other game after that. Um, like I said, it's not the way you want to attract fans by throwing just four passes. How much did that first game, that first season, affect the Rams as a whole as far as their existence in Cleveland was concerned? 
Yeah, I think it probably laid a pretty bad seed, to be honest. And, and in fact, it, let, it, it, it led to the, uh, to the undoing of Hugo Besdick in Cleveland as well. You had it in 1937. Here was this Rams franchise that came out of the AFL, and they were very much passing-oriented. They, they, they considered themselves razzle-dazzle. I mean, they had Sid Gilman, you know, the, the guy now considered the father of modern-day passing game on that team. So the owners wanted, they wanted that razzle-dazzle. They wanted something that was going to turn the turnstiles at, at Cleveland Stadium. So here comes Hugo Bestick, who, as I said, you know, this is a man who is known to have his own mind and, and perhaps even an, an anti-authoritarian streak. So he is, he is, uh, he has begun to the idea that he's going to come out, he's going to establish the ground game before he establishes the passing game. He's going to play fundamental football. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. A, a, an incredible four pass attempts the entire game. <laughs> You know, I mean, which even at the time was a little unusual, even in 1937. Right. So, yeah, I think it definitely took the win out of the sales. Here, here's Cleveland finally with what they think is going to be a, a franchise forever. They think this is going to be the, you know, to Cleveland what the Packers are to Green Bay or what, you know, the Bears are to Chicago. Before the game, they have a parade. They lower the lights in the state, in Cleveland Stadium, to introduce the players. You know, but then that said, the Lions were a team, a pretty solid team then as well. You know, they lost 28 nothing to the Lions, and the Lions had just won an NFL championship just a few years earlier. So, um, so it wasn't entirely surprising, but yeah, just the style of play and being shut out, and then it even started to rain and misting rain about midway through the grain the game, so the field is is muddy and. It, it, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't a very. It was certainly was not an auspicious debut by any means. And like you said earlier, there, I, there, there's mistrust uh, between the fans and this team. Uh, you know, for the f- the first five games, the, they played five games at home that first season. They averaged just 8,900 fans a game, and most of the 44,500 that turned out over the course of the entire season were there for the first game. How disappointed was management with attendance, and what did that mean long-term for the Rams? Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's a good point. And certainly they had higher aspirations for that, you know. You know, one thing, a little bit of caveat in that first game is that there were people there from Detroit as well. You know, back in those days, there was a, you know, uh, kind of a lake ferry that kind of took people immediately, for, you know, directly from Detroit to Cleveland. So there were some Detroit fans there. But you're right. When, you, when you're down to 9,000 fans a game, um, you know, there were a few other teams that had attendance that was nearly as bad. Uh, the Chicago Cardinals were no great uh, – with no great draw either, nor interestingly enough, were the Philadelphia Eagles. So the Rams certainly were down in, in the bottom there, and you're right, and that that's, that unfortunately started a, a pattern there. Um, and as I mentioned, <clears throat> it was pretty well established. I mean, you know, you needed to win to get attendance, but you needed attendance to generate the money to win. <laughs> Those owners knew as they came out of '37, they're like, we, in 1938, we have got to start winning, or else you know, this is this team is going to be, you know, this, this is going to be threatened here. And, and the league wanted the Rams to succeed. They wanted a team in Cleveland. How much pressure was management facing knowing that the league had failed in Cleveland previously and they really wanted a team to succeed in Cleveland? Yeah, I think a lot of pressure. You know, I think people don't realize, but Cleveland was a charter franchise city in, in, in the NFL in 1920. In fact, if you look at, you know, I mean, I think Ohio had six cities that were, were uh, of the 14 uh, original charter franchises. Right. So there's a, te- 
Yeah, so there's a team called the Tigers, and they lasted a couple of years, and then we had the Bulldogs in, in, uh, in 1924. They won the NFL championship. They're actually the third team in Cleveland that won the NFL championship other than the Rams and the Browns. Um, <clears throat> they were kind of a, an amalgamation of, of, the, of the Cleveland Tigers and, and the Canton, the legendary Canton Bulldogs. But then ultimately they sort of failed, and then they had a team called the Indians. Believe it or not, this gets back to um, you know the NFL being in the shadow of Major League Baseball. That team was put in Cleveland in 1931 directly by um, by the NFL. They they literally it was a it was a it was a league owned and league operated franchise. That was how desperate they were to get something going. Cleveland, the feeling really being that. Cleveland was a fairly big city then. It was, the, I think, the sixth largest city in the country then, and, and it had, um, and it was a well-known, you know, football area. I mean, you know, Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio is this is football territory right. here, you know, and it still is to this day. You know, college football, high school football, pro football, and Joe F. Carr was right. You know, here he was a Columbus native, and by the way, the NFL was headquartered in Columbus, Ohio, then as well, and. Um, he was just—he was right that that a team was going to take off one day. Pro football was going to catch fire in Cleveland, and uh, and he was doing you know his damnedest to make sure that that was going to happen. But you know, but so yeah, it was it was, it was pressure for sure. When you have the the league itself saying you know that they're ponying up money to make sure that this franchise is going to take off and it's getting off on the wrong foot, you know that that was not sending a, a good signal. And ultimately, um, well. I guess throughout their time in Cleveland, they bounced back and forth between a couple of stadiums. When they finally decided to call Cleveland Stadium home, they found what teams before them and after them found. It was a big stadium to play in. It was a cold stadium to play in. It was on Lake Erie. And if you don't sell it out, it can feel awfully empty in there. What kind of effect did playing in Cleveland Stadium have on the team? And the field, it was also far away from the stands, too. In fact, attendance was always a challenge for the Cleveland Rams. Why? And, and how much of that was or can be attributed to Cleveland Stadium? That's a good question. You know, in, in League Park, interestingly enough, and as you say, you know, the, the, the Rams bounced back and forth between League Park and Cleveland Stadium. As incidentally, so did the Cleveland Indians. Um, it was mm-hmm. almost like they're toggling back and forth. It was almost like they were trying to find the Goldilocks Stadium here. You know, it was like League Park just a little too small at twenty three thousand, Cleveland Stadium monstrously big at seventy eight thousand. You know, so. But interestingly enough, League Park was really, in many respects, like kind of a, 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 an optimal. Um, venue for football it was because it was hemmed in by a city block in a city neighborhood it, it had it had an, uh, a rectangular shape to it but yeah Cleveland Stadium I mean the city had spent millions on the stadium and, and they were gung-ho that one way or another they're gonna they're gonna get the value out of that stadium and uh, and, and actually Dan Reeves when he bought the team that he had an eye to that too I mean you know he, he saw the potential here Dan Reeves about 10 years earlier had been in the LA Coliseum interestingly enough and, you know, in a hundred thousand seat venue, and just said, "Wow, you know, this is the big time." And so that was one thing that did keep him in Cleveland is having that seventy-eight thousand seat stadium down on the lakefront. Now, I personally remember; I mean, the stadium was torn down twenty-two years ago. I was in many games at Cleveland Stadium for both the Browns and the Indians, and I mean, really, I mean, people get a little nostalgic in Cleveland for the stadium, but it was not a great place to be. I mean, <laughs> yeah. in the winter time. I mean, it was cold, it was wet, it was damp, it was, uh, you know, I mean, the field, 
was, um, it was, I mean, the whole stadium, <laughs> excuse me, was built in a landfill. And so the field would actually sink a little bit. And, you know, I mean, there would be water, uh, you know, in the tunnels, there would be, the field would just be torn up. So you're right. It wasn't, it just was not, it could certainly didn't contribute to, to, to the, you know, to the, to the Rams products. And, um, and as you said, it felt awfully empty. It was just so monstrous. They would take the the, the, the gridiron and they'd try to move it around the stadium. They would, you know, at one point the Rams owners came in, the original Ram, Rams owners, owners came in and moved it down towards sort of, the, sort of the southwest part of the stadium, towards one enclosed area. And then when Dan Rees came in, he kind of moved up to the northeast corner of the, you know, to, to an enclosed area. It's like they just tried to, you know, trying to find where was the optimal place to right. kind of stick this field in, in the stadium. And they just never really found it. So there really was never a great place other than maybe the bleachers. Which is, you know, the infamous dog pound. That was about that's about the best place to watch a game in that stadium. So. All right, let's talk about the product on the field for a moment. Could you imagine Bill Belichick, Bill Parcells, Bill Walsh? That three bills. Look at that. Chuck Knoll, Don Shula, Weeb Eubank, any great coach, any coach in the league for that matter today. Could you imagine them having? to face the downtown coaches after every game was played. Who were they and what kind of effect did they have on the team, particularly the coaching staff of the team? Yeah, the downtown coaches, and that, and that phrase was given to them by, uh, by a sports writer in Cleveland. Downtown coaches were that whole collection of, of uh, owners, as I mentioned, by uh, by 1940 1941 there were about 40 people who had a share of the uh, of the Rams and um Mary a uh, one of them had a other than I think Hugo Besdick and uh, uh and uh and Buzz Wetzel and actually Buzz Wetzel was the one who actually played a couple of games as an NFL player but beyond them not a Mary uh, one of them ever played a single NFL game but they were uh convinced these lawyers these businessmen involved in race tracks many of them um, they were convinced that they knew the game better than the coaches that they hired. So they were perpetually looking over these the, the coaches' shoulders. And in fact, at one point, it was even went so far as to where one of them, actually the president of the team, actually sat on the bench during one of the games and uh, and gave instructions to Hugo Bezdek as to you know player substitutions and play calling. I can't even and, imagine. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I think, you know, it came up a couple of years ago, I think, when the Browns had happened, where the GM was texting uh, instructions down to the to the, to the the field to one of the coaches. And it, it was kind of a throwback. It was, it was interesting. I, I blogged about it a little bit, just the historical uh, parallelism there. But, yeah, it's, uh, it was really those downtown coaches really just sent that franchise into, into sort of a tizzy and, and it, to the point where um, about half the team was backing Hugo Bezdick you know, and 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 another half was backing uh, another one of the coaches, and uh, and the, so now you have a relatively young team, and they're beginning to. Uh, I mean, the, the loyalties are fracturing here, and I mean, it's just really, a, really a bad way to kind of to, to kind of run a franchise. Um, and and they, and actually, after the downtown coaches sold the team, they even acknowledged that they had run it pretty much as a as a diversion or a hobby. In fact, they even called it one of them called it a weekly social event. And, uh, and so when Dan Reeves came in, he, you know, that was the end of that. He was like, he was bringing a far more professional sort of demeanor to, to owning a team. 
And they ultimately sell the team. They sell it to Dan Reeves. And from that point forward, it really was only a matter of time, as you had mentioned earlier, that this team would move. Heck, they even suspended operations in 1943 because of the war. And in retrospect, Reeves admitted how huge a mistake that was. Tell me about his decisions to suspend the team, to to withdraw from the league for the one year, how it affected the few fans he had, and overall, again, why was this Cleveland team continually ignored by Clevelanders? And, and I guess the other thing is, by suspending operations for that one year, it was almost as if this team had to start from scratch again. Yeah, that was an interesting decision that that, that Dan Reeves made, and you know, it, 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 in hindsight, I mean, it, it made a little bit of sense um, in the fact that it was the, the you know the depths of the war. Um, the Indians were, as I mentioned, were the premier franchise in town, and and their attendance was down uh, from uh, I think in 1942 was or 1943, I believe it was, was down about 200,000, and uh, in, in no small part because their big star Bob Feller was in the Navy, so. Dan Reeves was about 30 years old at the time, 31, early 30s, a um, little bit of a maverick and um, and a little bit, honestly, of an outcast uh, among the NFL owners. Um, his son kind of confirmed that to, to me when I interviewed him, that he, his father always felt he was a little bit outside of the of the uh, that inner circle. Most of those other NFL owners at the time, and we, you know, we're talking Hallis and Mara and you know Rooney and those guys. I mean, those guys were kind of salt of the earth types and you know, they had survived the depression. I mean, you know, they were, if they, if those guys could keep the NFL going during the depression, there was no way that, you know, World War II was going to stop their, their league. But Dan Reese didn't quite read it that way. So he made the first announcement, you know, I'm going to suspend operations for the duration of the war, fully expecting the rest of the, uh, the rest of the owners to get to line up right behind him, which of course they did not. They summarily ignored it and said, okay, fine, we're, we're going to continue uh, operating. And, uh, in fact, some of them, even a few of the people, some of the other teams even made some sort of insinuations as to Reeves was doing this because he knew he was up against kind of a bad situation here financially. He was, hmm. he was kind of punting, so to speak, you know, because he just knew he could not, he wasn't able to compete at the time. Um, but yeah, he immediately made, uh, realized he'd made a, a huge mistake because, uh, as they say, the NFL kept going on. Um, his star players were sort of, uh, that he had mothballed, so to speak, ended up being kind of farmed out to various teams. And, uh, so, so yeah, he then after within just literally just a couple of months came back and said, uh, said, you know, he went, he wanted back into the league and, and the league did not make it uh, very easy, easy for him to get back in. No, they didn't. They had to make some concessions and they talked about possible mergers with other teams as well. But the one thing they did do when they did come back in 44, they had a great draft. And it included a future Hall of Famer by the name of Bob Waterfield. Who were some of the other players drafted by the Rams that year? Who were some of their stars? Well, as you got into 1944, you know, you're getting, you start, you really started to see the gelling of a team that was about to win the, uh, the, the NFL championship in 1945, even though it came as a bit of a surprise. You had a, a you had an end who was Jim Benton. Here's a guy who 
um, you know, who is if it, if it were not for uh, for Don Hudson, this guy may well Jim Benton may well be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, just a, a, a prototype of a modern day pass catcher, and he had been on the Rams through the war, and then actually was uh, was never called into the war because he had a heart murmur and he also mm. had children. So mm. in those days, of course, yeah, they weren't uh, drafted. Another great player, Riley Rattlesnake Matheson, just a fantastic lineman, was on the team at that point. And then the Rams began to collect players who had been uh, on the team and had gone off the war. One of them was Jim Gillette, who mm-hmm. ended up being a star in the 1945 championship game. Um, Jim had been had actually played for the Rams in the early 40s, and he, you know, as I mentioned, went off to the war went into the Navy and was on the Merchant Marines in the, in the North Atlantic. Hmm. And uh, ultimately his son, by the way, played in the NFL in the 1970s. Uh, then we had Fred Gerke, who has a, you know, who's in the hall of fame for his own, uh, his own sort of uh, unique contributions. And uh, so he, he began, he came to the team. We had a guy named Steve Pritko who had, who'd played, uh, who played, who came to the Rams and played for the Giants. So you started to get these players, um, who were really forming the nucleus, and, that, and then you have a few more players who just played a year or two with the with the the Rams, and then they end up jumping to the uh, to the Browns. You had Don Greenwood, you had Chet Adams, you had Galen Smith. So a really good team, as you said. Yeah, they kind of came out of nowhere. They snuck up on people. Um, Nineteen forty-five, when the Rams won uh, the championship, uh, their PR guy said, you know, Nate Wallach. He said, you know. He said people thought the Rams were not going to be contenders. He said, but they overlooked one factor, and that was Bob Waterfield. Who was just phenomenal. Yep, absolutely. And here they are. They finally put together a team that ultimately is going to go out and win a championship. And so they have all these good players. They have a new coach in Aldo Dinelli. They finally start to turn things around. And at the same time, a new league is going to be formed, the All-American Football Conference. What kind of effect did Cleveland's entry into the AAFC have on the Rams? It wasn't a good effect. It was not a good effect. And it was uh, immediately the Rams are, are, are beset by questions of, well, you know, what, what do you think of this, of this up and coming team that they're talking about coming into, you know, into Cleveland and actually in the Browns would have started in 1945, but because of the war, it kind of delayed the, the start of the all America football conference until uh, 1946. So that would have been interesting if they had come in at 45, but yeah, they came in, um, you know, the AAFC, they're well-funded. Um, the Browns franchise is well-funded by, uh, Mickey McBride, who was a very well-connected businessman in Cleveland, uh, had been there for decades, had been a, a circulation uh, manager at, the, at, at a Cleveland newspaper. He was tied into the local power structure. Um, he owned the local uh, taxicab franchise. Um, so he was a guy who was, who was a player unto, unto himself. And then, and then he starts signing. He has Paul Brown as his head coach. You know, I mean, uh, in fact, John Dietrich, of the, as I mentioned, of the Cleveland Plain Dealer, had recommended to Mickey McBride, who admittedly knew nothing about football. He said, hey, who, who do you think I should hire as my coach? And, and, and uh, John Dietrich said without hesitation, he said, Paul Brown, who had just won a national championship with Ohio State in 1942. And, in fact, was an Ohio boy. He had come right. through a massive in Ohio. And then, of course, then you had on the, you know, you had other guys on that Browns team who started to get signed. Now, Lisa, which was Otto Graham. 
you know, and here is a guy <laughs> playing in the, you know, here is from a, you know, an Illinois boy. So you have a lot of players, and I think that's a main distinction with the Browns. Um, they were really something like half of the players in the Browns either had were from Ohio or they had an Ohio connection, or I mean, it seemed like a local team, whereas the Rams increasingly were seeming like a foreign team. They were, you know, they were running by California people and, you know, they were sending signals that they might, that they might move and that they, you know, so I think almost immediately there was a, a, a kind of a gravitational pull to the Browns because people felt as if, well, this, this might be the real deal here, you know? And it's incredible because the Rams started to win. They go five. They they start off. They're five and one. And after a four game road trip, there was finally demand for tickets because they're five and one. But instead of moving the game, they're playing at League Park. And instead of moving the game against the Green Bay Packers at Cleveland Stadium, they decide to expand League Park and they erect temporary stands. How this is a team that just can't do anything right, it seems. They this is a, 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 a jinx team. How crucial a blunder was that for the team's fortunes as far as staying in Cleveland? Because some of those stands collapsed, people were turned away. You talk about a bad move. This team can't do anything right. No wonder they're alienating fans. Exactly. Yeah, in fact, John Dietrich, as I mentioned, from the Plain Dealer, he argued that that was a fatal move. That that was probably, that was probably kind of the you know the the last blow. The, the Rams only played four games at home that season, and, and the first the first two of the first two weeks of the season, and nobody in Cleveland knew what this team was going to be. They just assumed there's going to be another 500 team. The last game of the season was played at Cleveland, and it was against a Boston team that was kind of a, a virtual non-entity at the time, and the, and the Rams had already clinched the Western Division. So that middle game was this middle crucial game. They're playing against the Green Bay Packers, who at that point was uh, was their biggest arch rival. You know, the Packers just dominated the Western uh, Division in that era. Don Hudson was just a perpetual thorn in the side of, of, of the Rams. So here you have this game, as you said, huge interest, um, and the Rams beat the Packers. It's the first time that they've ever beaten the Packers at home, and people there's just a surge of fans. Twenty eight thousand people tried to wow. buy tickets to this game. Yeah, and in twenty in Lake Park holds twenty three thousand people. So of course the question arises to Chili Walsh. Well, you of course you're going to move this game to Cleveland Stadium, right? And he said, No, I have a lease yet again. He cited how you have a lease with Leak Park. So as you say, he got this idea to erect temporary stands. And the worst part was, because it was still the war and steel was in short supply, they were wooden stands. So not long into the first quarter, the fans are pumped up. They start bouncing around the stands, and they collapse. And the one guy breaks his leg. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's chaos on the field. Fans end up ringing around the kind of the field to watch the rest of the game. As you said, some some people are turned away from the game, uh, from the gate because they can't fit any more people in the stadium. So yeah, here was their here was their breakout moment uh, in Cleveland, and as you said, it's just I mean it's just completely botched, and 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 it just didn't have to be that way. It, which almost you know if, if a conspiracy thinker may may question whether Joey <laughs> Walsh just you know just kind of did it out of you know out of spite or whatever you know so. And they go nine and one. They lead the league in so many different categories. They got players who set records. The Rams were finally the best team in the league. 
And for the 1945 championship game, Cleveland Stadium is going to play host to the game. And man, does it live up to its reputation. Thanks to nearly two feet of snow leading up to the game, which affected attendance, the game, it's, you know, it, 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 it could have been called the Ice Bowl. But, you know, since then, another game took that moniker. How awful was it? How awful was that championship game? It was pretty awful. And unfortunately, it doesn't officially rank with the NFL as the coldest games because they didn't have the, you know, back then they didn't have the weather readings. They didn't have accurate enough uh, weather data for historians today to rank it up there. But by all accounts, my father was at the game. Um, He was only 10 at the time, but he just remembers just how incredibly cold. But as you said, typical Cleveland. And anybody who's ever lived in the Great Lakes region will know how capricious the weather can be. You know, when the, when the Rams clinched the Western Division and the tickets went on sale in Cleveland Stadium, immediately they sold 30,000 tickets. I mean, this, this looked like it was on, on pace to set an NFL record for what up to then was only, you know, a dozen NFL championship games. Um, and finally interest in the Rams. Yes, exactly. And... Um, and, and so, of course, then a week before the game, it's like 50 degrees. And you're thinking, this is going to be fantastic. Ticket sales are going to be great in, in here in December. Well, as by, by Monday, a huge cold front moves in. Snow just begins descending just in, you know, in just, in just sort of apocalyptic waves. Um, the Rams get the idea to put, a, uh, to put straw on the field in order to insulate the field and keep it from freezing, upon which then they put a tarp upon which then, as you said, a couple of feet of snow is on top of this. So they've created this sort of sandwich of a field that by uh, game day is just a, you know, it's just a total mess because it's just snowed all week. And by the, uh, the morning of game day, the temperature was about zero, as I, as I say in, in the chapter in the game. It, was, it, was just, it literally was zero degrees. And as I mentioned, anybody who's ever been to Cleveland Stadium, at zero degrees. I mean, that, that might be like minus 20 in, in other places, just with the wind <laughs> off the lake and... And uh, so it, it was, by all accounts, just an absolutely nasty game. But they won it. But they won it, absolutely, and in, in a very bizarre fashion. Tell me about the game. Okay, so, well, the Rams came in as four-point uh, favorites, and uh, which I think some people are surprised to hear now. They were against the Washington Redskins, Sammy Baugh. But Sammy Baugh has been – he's been a little injured. Um, he had uh, – he actually only played the first quarter or so, first uh, maybe a halfway into the second quarter. But, of course, the pivotal play of the game, uh, the game is, is scoreless. Uh, the, the, the Rams have the, uh, have the Redskins backed up in their own territory, kind of on the two-yard line, with their backs backed up to what became later, much later, Cleveland State in the dog pound. And uh, Sammy Baugh took the snap. And at uh, one point was through to his right, and it's, uh, the wind caught the ball and just kind of dropped the ball kind of uh, 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 just kind of in open territory. And he actually got an intentional grounding penalty, which backed him up even more. On the next play, he was going to, he yet again, uh, looked as if he might punt. And instead, he then threw rapidly to his left, and uh, kind of a gust of wind took the ball, hit, uh, took it into a, an upright, <laughs> and it bounced off the upright and fell back into the end zone, at which point everybody stopped. Um, you know, and, and I, if you, there's a little bit of video out there on YouTube, actually, if you see the game, if you watch it kind of in slow motion, you can see the reaction. The ball just kind of skitters into a corner of the end zone, 
everybody stops. My father, as I mentioned, was there with his father, my grandfather. He remembers that play, and he, he wondered why like play stopped for a couple minutes. And then they put two points on the board for the Rams. And what it was, it was it was a, 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 even then a fairly unknown or obscure rule in the NFL that if a ball hits off the, 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 the crossbar, the upright, and bounces back into the end zone, it's a safety. Wow. So the Rams are. So the Rams are up by two to nothing. And, and as an aside, uh, uh, George Preston Marshall, who is the owner of the Redskins in, in the off season, would be so miffed by that ruling that he would be taken off the NFL books forever. And to this day, a, uh, a ball that hits the, hits the, the, the goalpost that comes back in the end zone is merely a dead ball. So that's now known as the, as the Marshall ball rule in the NFL. <laughs> but that ended up being, that ended up being the, 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 uh, the, uh, margin in the game the Rams ended up winning 15 to 14 and uh on two nice touchdown passes by by Bob Waterfield and uh and 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 that was pretty much uh a shocker to Cleveland I think you think a lot of people you know had not anticipated that and uh and and by that point there were about maybe 33 32,000 people in the stadium very frozen um, probably <laughs> many of them f- fairly well inebriated by all accounts. Uh, fires burning in the in the in the uh, in the stadium they, for, for heat. Uh, anybody who's familiar with Cleveland Browns games will find none of this at all surprising. Um, my father recalls that his father had warned him to stay away from from the uh, from the fire to stands because he was afraid that he might burn himself. So, yeah, just a, a totally uh, is is night is is falling on Cleveland Stadium and you get some crazies running around. That was that was how the Rams won the 1945 championship. And here it should be a time of celebration, but the upstart AAFC and the Cleveland Browns were making it anything but a time for celebration. They were threatening to sign away the Rams' best players. And 27 days later, 27 days after the Rams win the championship, bye-bye, they're gone. Incredible. They left. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they left. But it wasn't without a fight, wasn't without concessions, and it was hidden from the public because of a newspaper strike. I mean... Just again, incredible stuff. Right. Yeah. They, um, as you said, is was, was not without a fight. Here, yet again, here's Dan Reeves, who is you know not necessarily um, uh, you know in the inner circle here with his fellow owners, and and he he pretty much says at one point when he's denied because he he's denied several times. He said, "No, you are not. You are not going to move this team to Los Angeles." The NFL at the time was very uh, insular, and they very much wanted to stay in kind of their corner of the country. You know, when you think about it, the NFL pretty much at that point stopped at Chicago and Green Bay, and it didn't. That was it. And um, so all the all the NFL owners could think about was the expense of having to train teams all the way out to Los Angeles, right. and, and and it was in those days it was expensive. It's a long way to go. You know, Dan Reese is, is part of his argument with the with the owners. He says, you know, he basically says, hey, now come on, you know, I mean. Los Angeles uh, is only a 45-hour train ride from Chicago. You know, what are you guys making such a big deal about this for? So, which is funny because it's two days out there, two days back. So, I mean, the owners had a case. And, and as I said, it was, um, it, you know, today would be almost like uh, the NFL having, I think, a franchise in Asia. You know, so it would be like, okay, so all these teams have to jet all the way to Asia to, to play their games. But, yeah, it's not without 
many arguments, but Dan Reeves gets his way when he basically tells the other owners, he says, fine, then the Rams are out of the NFL. So because, as you mentioned, the AAFC is, is already lurking here because they have already announced they're putting a team in San Francisco called the 49ers. They're right. putting a team in Los Angeles called the Dons. And so Dan Reeves plays that to his advantage, and he says, hey, you know, we're going to lose – California is is going to be a huge market. It already is a huge market. LA already was the fifth largest city. He said we're gonna we're gonna lose out to the All America Football Conference. We need to get a stake in the ground in California, and that was pretty much how he uh, how he convinced the other owners to give him permission. Although that said, the NFL owners did not do it without hedging a little bit. They basically they told him they said. Uh, they said, okay, fine, if, you know, you can move, but you need to have a stadium in Los Angeles within 90 days. And if you don't, the team will be moved to Cincinnati, which I thought was interesting. So, you know, there was, the, you know, the briefest of moments there, the outside possibility that, the, that it might have been the Cincinnati Rams. But, but sure enough, um, uh, Reeves, even though he had already had a, a backup plan to play in a couple other little ball, uh, baseball stadiums, one uh, called Gilmore uh, stadium and called Wrigley Field, believe it or not. He had backup plans, but it really he had set his sights on that on that huge hundred thousand seat LA Coliseum, and he was determined he was going to get into it. And 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 it wasn't easy for him, like you said. He was determined he was going to get into it, and I think he probably thought it'd be pretty easy to get into that stadium, but it wasn't. Right. Yeah, you know, it was the LA Coliseum had been off limits to the NFL for probably I think at that, at that point twenty years, and. In part, it was because, yet again, and we're talking about you know the, the jealousy among sports here. It was the home field for USC. And uh, once, once the NFL started to play some games there in the mid-20s, USC basically saw this as competition. So they, they had banished NFL games for 20 years there. And uh, so Dan Reese thought, well, of course, I'm bringing, I'm bringing a championship NFL team here. You know, they'll, they'll open, open their arms wide and welcome us to the LA Coliseum. But, it, of course, it didn't turn out that way. And, and what Reeves had not anticipated, and in particular Chili Walsh, who now is out there and he's negotiating on behalf of the Rams franchise, shows up at a hearing for this, of the L.A. Coliseum Commission. And what he doesn't know is that there are going to be three African-American sports writers who are going to be at the hearing to hear whether or not the Rams should get access to the, uh, to the Coliseum. And these three African-American players have taken it upon themselves to use this as an opportunity to begin to reintegrate the NFL. The NFL has not had African-American players since 1932 uh, due to the the, uh, Depression. There was a concern among the NFL owners that they might be giving jobs to African-Americans rather than whites. So there's a sort of like, uh, you know, this undercurrent of of racism here and, 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 uh, and uh, a lack of integration. So these African American sports writers stand up basically at the uh, at the hearing, and they use an argument. They actually uh, 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 cite a Supreme Court ruling, which is then then in effect, which is we now remember as separate but equal. And basically, they said, okay, if the LA Coliseum is going to be the home of the white team, then where is the stadium in Los Angeles that's going to be home for the black team? Wow. And if, yeah, and. Uh, of course, Los Angeles did not want this controversy. Los Angeles was very much was welcoming. They wanted to get professional sports, major league sports, out to their city, which, of course, they ended up doing in, 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 on many counts. They did not want this controversy whatsoever. And they, um, so they turned pretty much to Chili Walsh, and they said, well, would you, consider, uh, would you consider integrating the team and hiring an African-American player? And Chili Walsh said, sure, absolutely. 
uh, not necessarily knowing whether or not he would be held to that. But of course, they did. Uh, those those activists in L.A. did hold him to that, and that was how the Rams got into the Coliseum. And to add salt to the wound, the, uh, a few of the Rams decide to stay in Cleveland and play for the newly formed Browns, who drew record crowds of more than 60,000 people in Cleveland Stadium. Cleveland proved it could support a football team. They didn't want to support the Rams, but they had no problem supporting the Browns. And then the Browns go on to win the only championships the AAFC ever had before ultimately joining the NFL. And in 1950, they beat, lo and behold, the Los Angeles Rams for the NFL title. How ironic is that? And what sweet revenge for the fans of Cleveland football to beat the team that abandoned them. Absolutely. And it was a tight game, too, you know, and, and the Rams came back to Cleveland and there was there was no love loss there. You know, as you mentioned, there had been a lawsuit there. Um, several of the players on the Rams, when when they're when Dan Rees announced he's moving the team to Los Angeles, they, you know, we have to think back to players in those days. They, they, they weren't paid that much. And many of them had uh, well, most of them had uh, had had offseason jobs. So several of the players basically said, I'm, I'm not moving to Los Angeles. There's nothing that would be, you know, that there's nothing for me there. When I signed up to play uh, with this team, I, I signed with the Cleveland Rams. I did not sign with the Los Angeles Rams. Right. So, so, so Dan Reeves uh, prevailed upon him just legally that, you know, it compelled them to, to move to Los Angeles. And it went all the way to a, uh, to, to a district judge who ruled against uh, Dan Reeves, which you know, I, I, I since talked with a, a family friend who is an attorney, and, and he's amazed that that would actually happen. That he would actually that Reese would lose that particular case because to him it seemed like it would be a pretty, uh, pretty open and shut case. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, Dan Reese is ruled against, and those players are allowed to continue on and stay in Cleveland, and they play for the uh, for the Browns. So they had Chet Adams and Galen Smith, and uh, they joined the Browns. And so you had you had in that 1946 you had um, you had uh, several players who had uh, had been with the had been with the Rams and had been with the Browns. In fact, uh, uh, Don Greenwood won a championship in 1945 with the with the Rams, 1946 with the Browns, and 1947 with the Browns, and then he retired. So there's another kind of interesting right. statistic. I don't know how many how many players have played three years, won championships in all three, and then retired. That's but crazy. That's Don Greenwood. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. So so. The Browns beat the Rams in 50, but then the Rams come back and beat the Browns for the title in 51, and then the Rams yes. wouldn't win again until they were in St. Louis, thus the three championships in three cities for the Rams. The Browns came back in 52 to beat the Rams. Cleveland, by that time, was truly title town. Again, a, a name taken by another city. You know, I could go on forever, and I really only, I believe we've only scratched the surface of the entire Cleveland Rams story. And I want to end it here. As you had mentioned, it went to the courts. And the ruling was, for all intents and purposes, the Rams ceased to exist. Some players from the Rams refused to follow the team to Los Angeles, as you had said, such as Galen Smith and Chet Adams. How apropos, though, was that ruling 
that this team ceased to exist. I find that wording very funny. Yeah, I agree with that. And 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 it, this, you have that flash of ten years, and uh, you know, and and you're absolutely right. They 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 became a completely different team. You know, once they they may have moved to Los Angeles, but it's almost as if they left something behind because then when they went out to Los Angeles, it was just a completely different franchise. They were they became Hollywood's team. They had shed an identity. It was you know I, I always think of just somebody taking you know just a kind of an ordinary Joe in Ohio and going to LA, you know, and, 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 and getting falling into the Hollywood crowd or something. That's exactly what the Rams were. It was almost like they had, they had just transmogrified or transformed into an entirely different identity and the Cleveland Rams. Yes, absolutely. That, that day they ceased to exist. And then, you know, and to some extent, interestingly enough, they ceased to exist to many people in Cleveland, which is one reason why, why I wrote the book. It's just, it's remarkable. Much of the team's history was lost in Cleveland, even within a few decades, the Browns so occluded everything that the Rams had done in Cleveland um, that it's really kind of a shame that the Rams' history has has been lost. You know, has been lost uh, to so many people. Like I said, I think we've only scratched the surface. I could talk so much more. I'm sure you can about the Cleveland Rams, Jim. I can't thank you enough for joining me today on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the Cleveland Rams. What a great topic! What a great story. Say, how can people get a hold of your book? You know, they could go to uh, to McFarland Books would be probably be the way, uh, best way. That's the publisher. Um, the other way too, if you'd like to order just directly off my website, it's uh, cleerams.com. And uh, if you buy it through my site, even I'll be happy to to sign the book as well and ship it off to you. So however you want to do it, it's also on Amazon, you know, so any any online book retailers as well. Awesome. Hey, would you consider coming back again? I absolutely would. Be happy to, Warren. Awesome. Jim, thanks again so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Great show. Thank you, Warren. Good talking to you. In his book and on today's podcast, Jim spoke about how the NFL wanted a successful team in Cleveland. And they tried several times. The first team in Cleveland was the Tigers, and they were followed by the Indians, a team that only played on the road. Then along came the Bulldogs, and they were led by quarterback Benny Friedman, who, incidentally, was the subject of Sports Forgotten Heroes episode number 12. The Bulldogs were followed by a second version of the Indians, and then along came the Rams. The Browns actually got their start in the AAFC, the All-American Football Conference, which ultimately folded and some of their teams, including the Browns, were absorbed by the NFL. The Browns hung around until 1995 before moving on to Baltimore. Cleveland, however, was able to keep all of the Browns' records and the team was reborn in 1999. As for the Rams, 1937, their first NFL campaign, they went 1-10. and and followed that by going 4-7 in 1938. They finally reached 500 by going 5-5-1 five, five, in 1939. They fell back to 4-6-1 in 1940, followed by seasons of 2-9 and 5-6. And and they didn't play in 1943, then went 4-6 in 1944, and finally 9-1 in 1945 and won the NFL championship. 27 days later, they relocated to Los Angeles. In 1949, the Rams lost to the Eagles in the NFL Championship. Then they lost to the Browns in the 1950 title game, beat the Browns in the 1951 championship, and then lost the title again to Cleveland in 1955. 
The Rams' road to Los Angeles has been a long one. After leaving Cleveland, they called LA home through the 1994 season, then moved to St. Louis and called it home from 1995 through 2015 before once again relocating to Los Angeles for the 2016 season. Overall, the Rams have won 15 division titles, six conference titles, and three overall championships. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the controversial story of one of the most fascinating players in soccer, or football, Justin Fashionu. A story about a striker who had such a terrific career ahead of him, but ended very tragically. For more on Sports Forgotten Heroes, please visit sportsfh.com. Thank you again to today's guest, Jim Selecki, and see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.